0: This morning, we are continuing in our series on evangelism. Thus far, for the past four weeks, we have examined the gospel. We have examined what is evangelism. We've examined how hospitality serves our evangelistic endeavors. We've looked at the importance of doing justice in the world when it comes to evangelism. And then last week, we saw that evangelism is a cross-cultural endeavor. Today, however, we are shifting our approach and look at evangelism because thus far we have looked outwardly. This week we look inwardly. This morning we're looking at holiness and evangelism. In the year 2005, Christian Smith, that's not a generic name, that's his real name, Christian Smith published a book Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Now, in this book, I believe he not only described religious culture in America in the year 2005 among youth, I think he also has something to say about our culture today. In that book, he introduced the term moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what he classified the religious culture as. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Culture is moralistic, he says. He said central to our belief is that we are to live a good and right life. It's important to live a good life, he said, because we are a therapeutic culture. Doing good has implications on our own lives, It's strictly for the benefit of the individual who does the good. I do good to feel good about myself. And really, our good deeds have no bearing on what God does in the world because we believe in a deistic God. A God who, sure, he created the world, but now he is hands-off. He just lets the world run as it is, and he dare not intervene. My fear is that the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism has begun to infiltrate our churches. Sure, we approach it slightly differently, right? We we accept that it's God who gives us the morals. And in a way, we obey as a response to what he's done for us. But in a way, we live as though how we obey God has no effect on the lives of others. Sure, it affects me and my relationship with God, but it does not impact the lives of those around us. And that is not true. And so my aim this morning is for us to see from this text that holiness and evangelism are intertwined. So what is holiness? Well, I think we're used to understanding holiness as doing good, as obeying a certain set of rules. In a way, holiness ought to look like Jesus. If we're living like Jesus, we'd be living a holy life. But less familiar, I think, to us is the idea that holiness is living a separate life. To be holy is to be other. It's to be distinct from those around us. And it's this combination of different and good that is holy. So for example, we celebrate holidays or holy days. They're days that we set aside time to celebrate something good that happened in the world. As Christians, we are called to be good and different. And it's this combination that allows us to impact those around us. So I want to have us see three things this morning. First off, that holiness is a conduit of change. Secondly, holiness is a proclamation of power. And lastly, holiness is a display of delight. Firstly, holiness is a conduit for change. Look at verse 9 again. It says, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice that God's work in our lives is intended to have ripple effects. God changes us. He makes us a holy nation, a holy people, So that, it says, that we may proclaim his excellencies. See, God saves you to change you, to send you. And God's work in us is not complete until we are sent, until we are proclaiming what he's done. His intention is that our life would be a light To the world around us. This past fall, we did some major renovations on our house. We moved a bunch of walls around, and to do that, we needed to relocate some of the lights. And because I've been zapped before and don't really like that, we called in an electrician. And so the electrician had to rip off a bunch of drywall and run a bunch of wires and change the circuits and add new light switches. But that's not, again, the reason I call them in. The, the reason I call them in is so that there would be light in places there was not previously light. It's not until there is light in new places that I am actually aware that he did anything behind the walls. The same is true of our lives. If we are not changed, if we are not different, if we are not displaying the light of Christ in this dark world, the world will not know that we have been internally changed also. Now, I believe there's a pushback here. And I feel this pushback in my own life, and I hear this pushback from you. It's this that I just don't believe that I can really make an impact in the world. I don't really believe that I can affect change. In the Old Testament, it is not only people who are declared holy, God declares that there are holy places. So, when Noah comes off the ark after God had flooded the world, he builds an altar on the place the ark lands. He, he consecrates it or he declares it to be holy as a remembrance of where God brought him salvation. When Jacob is lying on the ground and the rock that he was laying on, the rock that he had been slobbering all over, he then changes it and declares that rock to be holy because God met him and spoke to him in that place. When Moses approaches the burning bush, God tells him, take off your sandals because the ground you are standing on is holy ground. What is it that makes those places holy? There's not anything special in and of of themselves. There's nothing intrinsically holy about the ground or the rock of those places. It's that God has come and touched those places. God was the one who made them holy. See, that's what makes us holy. Holy. It's not our intrinsic worth. It's not what we bring to the table. It's that God has come and touched us. That God has met me and you. But there's something different about those places that God declares holy and our lives which are now holy. See, those places experienced a one-time encounter with God. But when we're made holy, we are given the Holy Spirit. And so we continue to be an encounter with God. The Holy Spirit is God living in us. It's what makes us holy. It's what constantly changes us. And it's him who continually works through us. I remember at my previous church, being in the young adults group, and there was this worship night, and the young adults pastor came up and he said, "Look, right now you are standing on holy ground." And honestly, I was like, Psh, "Who is this guy? Who, who is who's this guy that gets to declare the ground I'm standing on as holy ground? Like that's something God did." But actually, now as I reflect on what he said, I think he's right. It's holy ground because God was there in us. God was in us. So to answer your question, what, what can I do? Really, what change can I affect? The answer is, well, nothing. You cannot do anything in and of yourselves, but God can do something if you have been made holy, if you have received the Holy Spirit, then when people are talking to you, they are encountering the living God. And he can do whatever he pleases. It may not appear as though God did something in that moment. They may not automatically in that moment give their life to Jesus, but that does not change the reality that God is at work. See, I think that one of the greatest challenges we face in doing evangelism is the fear of failure. We're afraid we'll say the wrong thing. We're afraid we won't have the right words. We're afraid that people won't really make a decision. Well, we need to know that it's not us who changes people. It's God. It's God who chooses people, 1 Peter says. It's God who calls people, and it's God who gives mercy. We go not because we have everything together. We go because we've been made holy, so that the God who is holy might work through us. We're conduits of change. Secondly, though, holiness is a proclamation of power. It's a proclamation of power. Verse nine again says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These words here are both profound and scandalous. The the reason they're scandalous is because this is not the first time in the Bible we hear this language. This language was also used in the Old Testament. So, So listen to these verses. Exodus 19 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God proclaims of Israel after he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. Or Isaiah 43 says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine, my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. These are words God proclaims over Israel as a promise to save them from exile in Babylon. Or we read this in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. We hear echoes of creation in First Peter. And so the reason these verses that we read here in Peter are so scandalous is because the words used to describe the Exodus, when God brought plagues and part of the sea and brought his people across dry land. The words God used to declare freedom from exile in Babylon, the world superpower at the time when God's people just walked freely back to their homeland. The words that God used to bring light out of darkness, to bring substance out of nothing are the same words he used to speak about you. This is our story now, that though we were enslaved to sin, though we had no hope of a home, that though we were wandering in darkness, Jesus came to defeat sin and Satan. He came and rose again and gave us a home, a heavenly home to hope in. And he gave us his spirit so that we might live and know how to live a life of flourishing. You see, therefore, when we are living a holy life, we are proclaiming the power that God has in this world. We're proclaiming that God can change you as he changed us. J.C. Ryle said, I believe that far more is done for Christ's kingdom by the holy living of believers than we are all aware of. It makes religion beautiful and draws men to consider it like a lighthouse seen far off. History is littered with stories of great change in the lives of people. But I saw this for myself in high school. There was a girl in my high school, a good friend of mine, and she would have claimed to be a Christian. And in most cases, she was living a upstanding life, a holy life. But there was one area, particularly her desire for affection and affirmation that, well, she turned to boys for. And in that area of her life, she did not look that different from the rest of our school. But something changed in her. The Holy Spirit convicted her, and and all of a sudden, she, she broke away from her former life. She turned to the Lord for her affection and affirmation. And as a result of that, her two best friends soon came to know the Lord. You see, they had seen her life previously. They had heard her speak about the Lord. But all of a sudden, they saw her in a new way they saw the holistic power of the gospel, that it penetrates down to our very depths. Now, please hear me. Holiness is not evangelism. The gospel is always good news, and that good news is something we say or proclaim. However, we cannot separate the declaration of the gospel from the display of the gospel. If we fail to declare the gospel, then they will not know why we are different. But if we fail to display the gospel, it undermines our declaration. See, I believe, and rightly so, that as Christians, it is appropriate us appropriate for us to contextualize the gospel, right? We we try to take down any unnecessary barriers that we can have in in, in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But I'm worried that we've over-contextualized in some instance. I, I believe that we've lost our peculiarity, our separateness, our otherness, See, it's almost as though as Christians we've begun to blend in. It's as though we're camouflaging the gospel. There's nothing salty about our lives, nothing peculiar. There's nothing stands out. There's nothing causing people to want to know what is it about you that makes you different. There's no evidence that shows them God is powerful and able to change. So let me ask you, Does your life look different than the world's? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? This past week, we were discussing evangelism in our community group. It was a wonderful time of sharing our, our joys in evangelism and also our struggles in doing evangelism. And someone said something and I'm so grateful they shared it because it's what we feel deep inside. It's that they didn't know where to start. But like, how, how do I begin doing evangelism? How do I know what to, to break in with? How do I know how to start that conversation? Well, last week, he was very helpful and he, he showed us that's important just to listen. to to hear someone else's story, to know how the gospel might come in and change your life. But then what we do then is we take that. So we, we begin by saying, hey, tell me your story. Tell me about yourself. And then we respond and say, hey, can I tell you my story? I think one of the easiest and best ways we can begin doing the work of evangelism is just by sharing our testimony. Hey, can I tell you about what God's done in my life. And then we use our story and we weave in the gospel. We tell of our former life of sin. We tell of how Jesus came and brought us salvation and forgiveness. We tell them of how we are different now because we have a new hope, because God's defeated the power of sin in our lives. And we use our story as a proclamation of God's power. And so I just encourage you, Practice sharing your testimony. Think of a one-minute way to share your story, a three-minute way of sharing your story, a 10-minute way of sharing your story. Practice. Practice on your spouse. Tell them your story. Tell your friends. Ask them to critique you and give you advice on how you can make sure God is the hero of your story. Share your testimony. If you are a Christian, your story is a proclamation of power. Look, our lives are far from perfect, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not God came and made me perfect or sinless. It's that God's changed me, and so I want to live for him. John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is our story. This is what our holiness helps to proclaim. Lastly, holiness is a display of delight. Look at verses 11 and 12 Another translation might say aliens and strangers. See, the idea is that this earth is not our ultimate home. If home is where the heart is, our heart is not here. And so our home is not here. It's not this earth which will ultimately satisfy us. Therefore, we abstain. Abstain, Peter says, from the passions of the flesh. Don't, don't give in to your sinful desires. Don't give in to the temptations of this world. As C.S. Lewis would say, stop playing in mud pies. Don't you realize there's an ocean just around the corner? See, when we live holy lives, we are displaying to this world that we believe there is something more than this world. We're displaying to this world that we believe there is something better yet to come. This world will not quench our thirst. Jesus will. Jesus is the one who satisfies. John 6:35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, faith in Jesus is more than just having him come in and save us. Faith in Jesus is also trusting Jesus to satisfy our longings. Jesus is Savior and Lord, but also treasure. And that means the opposite is also true. When we fall into sin, we betray our message. We betray the fact that Jesus is greater than the pleasures of this world. We know, many of us recently, that there has been more than one instance where some high-profile Christian has fallen into sin, where they've pursued Power, control, wealth, sexual pleasure, instead of Christ. And when they've done that, they've tarnished the beauty of Jesus. They've caused the world to question whether or not they really want Jesus. Is he really that good then? And if that happens in our own lives, and it does happen, for we do fall into sin, we come and we repent. Sometimes, publicly, at least before those people where we have sinned against, we declare to them we have not lived the way we ought to. And we don't want that former sinful life. We want to be different. We believe there's something better. In 2018, my family and I were driving back from Kentucky. We had spent the year uh, finishing up our schooling, and we had flown there, but we decided we would drive back. And so it's a, it's a 40-hour drive normally. Uh, it's like a million hours with kids. Um, and so, so we're driving back, and, and I'm missing home at this point. It's been a year since I've seen my family. It's been a year since I've had Tim Hortons. I know it's bad when I'm craving Tim Hortons coffee. It's bad when I'm craving mountains. I just want to see a peak in the sky. And so so we're driving back and something happened as we got closer. We're we're approaching the the Canadian border and, and I know there are these kind of Great American delights of mine, these, these burger joints and these ice cream places, and all of a sudden I, I'm beginning to, to want those, but, but I know I need to keep going. I, I know there's, there's something better a, ahead of me. I, I'm craving something greater, right? The gas lights on, I'm just like, we're just, we're powering through. Kids like, daddy, I have to pee. I'm hold it. We're coming down this winding road. They're about to throw up. Just swallow it. Just we're, we're getting home. I want to be home. Kids, there's something better just around the corner. That's what we declare when we hold off, when we abstain from the pleasures of this world. We declare that Jesus is better. So again, let me ask you, What does your life tell the world about what you love? What does your life tell the world about what you delight in? The things you watch, the way you speak, the way we spend our money. What's our treasure? Notice that there's this progression then that happens here. Right? It's not just that we reject the pleasures of this world and all of a sudden the world is like, tell me about Jesus. That's not, that's not always how it works. It goes through a progression. It says, first look, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they call us evildoers. See, when we denounce the pleasures of this world, well, the world bites back. This was the case in the early church, right? The church had decided to refuse purchasing idols. They didn't partake in the sexual orgies taking place in the pagan temples. They they didn't go to the games. They didn't partake in the murder that took place there. And so what did Rome call them? They called them evildoers, They said that Christians were the reason to blame for all of the hardship that Rome experienced, their their lost battles in war, the, the, the plagues that they experienced, the disasters that they occurred. And the same is true today, is it not? We're called bigots, homophobic, intolerant, judgmental, and we too are blamed for the pain that our culture experiences. But something then happens, right? Despite calling us evildoers, verse 12 continues, eventually they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's as though the Holy Spirit continues to to work through us and, and, and tell the world that it's not that we don't love them, it's that we love something else. Eventually, God uses that to save people. It says these people come and they glorify God when Jesus returns. It's because they themselves have given their lives to Christ. It's because they themselves have begun to long for Jesus' return. Christ City. We long for those around us to know Jesus. We have loved ones, friends, neighbors, coworkers that we want to know Jesus. Live differently. Display that there is something greater still to come and let the Holy Spirit work through you to change them. So let me end with this story. George Whitfield lived in the 18th century. He was considered by many to be the greatest evangelist the world had ever seen after the Apostle Paul. Thousands would come, many from from different towns and cities to, to hear him speak about Jesus. Well, one day, a man saw David Hume walking out of his house at five in the morning. David Hume many of us know, was a Scottish philosopher and also a deist. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe that God spoke to us through the Bible. And he certainly did not believe that God was going to do anything in this world. And so this man came and, and he approached David Hume and he asked him, where are you going at five in the morning?" He said, I'm going to go and listen to George Whitfield. The man asks, but you don't believe a word that Whitfield preaches. To which Hume reply, replied, No. But he does. That's my prayer for us this morning that the world would see us and they would say, you believe what you are talking about. Let me pray for us. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we confess that we have failed more times than one, Lord, in this regard. We've failed to tell the good news of Jesus to those around us. Lord, we've been afraid. So I ask, Lord, strengthen our hearts. Help us to trust, Lord, not on our own power, but in you, the one who also changed us. Lord, we confess that we have fallen into sin. We confess that we have forgotten where our true home is. So, Father, I pray Help us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Help us to long for that which is to come. Lord, help us to live holy lives. Lord, we pray this, Lord, so that you might save some. Save our loved ones, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.